Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. We live in a world decisively organized everywhere by capitalism. Capitalism is a particular way for organizing the production of goods and services. And today it's extremely interdependent and interconnected globally through multinational corporations, foreign direct investment, international trade, lending and borrowing, currency and bond markets, and in other ways. At the same time though, capitalism is highly uneven. For a really stark example, think about how different capitalism is in so-called Canada from what it is in Haiti. There are very deep structural inequalities in how capitalism has developed over time, starting in England over four centuries ago and spreading all over the world. So we live in a capitalist world, which is certainly not flat. It's more like a pyramid. It's very hierarchical. What's more, capitalism is not just about producing commodities, commodities that are produced by firms that compete with each other while they employ people who work for wages. The system of states is also part of capitalism. That's something which is unfortunately understood by too few people on the left. So competition between states needs to be understood as part of capitalist competition. This means then we live in one world, a capitalist world that's uneven, hierarchical, and within which there's a lot of rivalry, both between companies and states, a lot of conflict, as well as cooperation. To understand all this, the concept of imperialism can be helpful. However, we have to make sure that it's not trivialized by just reducing it to meaning what the United States does, which is what some people on the left do. It's also a mistake to take what Lenin wrote in 1916 in his pamphlet, Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism, as the definitive basis for a theory of imperialism. And that's because Lenin was not, I think, entirely right at the time, and also capitalism uh, has changed in important ways since then. But imperialism can be a way of understanding how capitalism is a global system that's organized hierarchically in a way that drains wealth from most of the world to the regions where capitalism is most developed, to the benefit of capital in those societies above all. At the top of this pyramid, we still find the United States. Below it, other imperialist states, including the UK, Germany, France, Russia, Canada, and China, which we're going to be talking about today, and Australia. Below them are sub-imperialist states with regional power, and at the bottom, most of the countries of the world. I think it's helpful to think about this as what Lenin called an imperialist chain, a hierarchy of states engaged in both economic and geopolitical competition. This episode is the second of two episodes of Victor's Children about imperialism today. The first one focused on the United States, and this one is going to be focused on China, and we'll also talk a little bit about Russia. Listeners who are interested in imperialism in general, and Canadian imperialism in particular, might also want to go back and check out episode 10 of Victor's Children, where the guest was Todd Gordon. But today, my guests are Ashley Smith and Kevin Lynn. Ashley was a guest on the recent episode on U.S. imperialism, and Kevin was a guest back on episode three of Victor's Children, talking about China from 1949 to the present. So could you introduce yourselves? Uh, maybe Kevin first? Sure. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, so my name is Kevin Lin. Um, I have been working on 
issues relating to uh, labor struggle and political economy in China for uh, many years. And in recent years, I've turned more of my attention to this question of U.S.-China rivalry, uh, having seen how these tensions uh, between U.S. and China uh, wrapped up over the last eight to ten years, and uh, having lived in mainland China, in Hong Kong, and in the U.S., uh, I really have seen the rivalry played out from sort of different standpoints. Um, but, you know, I also want to always want to emphasize the importance of, of grounding the discussion uh, around U.S.-China rivalry and imperialism uh, through the perspective of class relations and labor, which is, you know, really what I have been uh, focused on for, for many years. Ashley Smith, I'm uh, the production manager for Spectre Journal. I'm a member of the Tempest Collective, and I've been tracking in particular the U.S.-China rivalry for the last 15, 20 years as it developed coming out of the 1990s um, and the whole neoliberal boom. And now it's really come to a head. So the question of how the left approaches this central antagonism at the heart of global capitalism, I think is a pressing um, issue around which there's tremendous confusion and it's time for clarity in precisely the way that Kevin is talking about that we have to, you know, in the U.S. oppose U.S. imperialism as our top priority, but provide no political um, support to China and Chinese imperialism and instead build solidarity from below amongst the uh, left forces throughout the world and um, especially the labor movements in both countries which are going to be pitted against one another with the return of new nationalist industrial policies on all sides of the world economy right now. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. Maybe before we go any further, you could say something about the book, which I know the two of you are collaborating with others on for Haymarket. Kevin, do you want to do that? Yeah. So uh, hopefully this is going to come out uh, next year. Um, so the book is, is uh, really kind of an introduction for uh, leftists in the U.S., in Canada, in other uh, parts of the world around both uh, the question of uh, Chinese capitalism, um, social movement, labor struggle, feminist struggle, environmental struggles in China, but also this question of U.S.-China uh, rivalry. I think at this moment, uh, it is useful to have a book that uh, I think I think orient the left uh, internationally around this question because there are as we're going to discuss, there are so many uh, misunderstandings and confusions and, and problems uh, when it comes to thinking about uh, this question of U.S.-China rivalry and imperialism. And even just understanding what's happening, the, the, the dynamics of capitalism, class relations. So I think we want to do this book so that, uh, you know, people who are interested in those questions but don't necessarily know a lot already uh, use this as a point for the discussions. Yeah, definitely a book that listeners should uh, look out for when it comes out next year. Yeah, just okay. to just to add, there are other authors that we're working with. Um, obviously, Kevin and myself, but also Rosa Liu and uh, Eli Friedman are the co-authors. So each with their own specialties. So it's it'll be a very good volume for people to use. And the tentative working title, we haven't finalized it, but is against imperialism, capitalism, the U.S.-China rivalry, and international solidarity. Okay, that's hopefully next year from Haymarket. All right, let's talk about China. So China has changed enormously since the Chinese Communist Party government began to open to foreign investment uh, in the late 1970s. 
as, along with other so-called reforms to, uh, to Chinese society. Uh, but there are also areas of continuity between that era. Um, you know, the era that began then, all the, and then the, the, there, were, there was continuity between that and the previous era, which went from um, 1949, when the Chinese Communist Party came to power, um, through till the late 1970s. So, Kevin, could you start us off by talking just a little bit about where China was fitting in the world system in the decades between 1949 and the late 1970s? Yeah, so th there's a lot to be said about this period. Um, but I think one thing to emphasize is, you know, before China's economic miracles in the last couple of decades, um, there was already a great deal of heavy industrialization uh, uh, in China between the 1950s and the 1970s. Uh, despite sometimes um, interruptions by by political campaigns, um, there were actually China's e economic high uh, industry economic growth was actually uh, pretty steady throughout that three decades uh, period, and this is widely acknowledged to have laid the basis, the ground for China's subsequent economic development. So, in in that sense, there there is definitely continuity. So, China's industrialization over the last three, four decades didn't come out of nowhere. It was built on uh, uh, high industrialization during the earlier period. Uh, but the other thing I want to emphasize is that all throughout this period between 1950s and 1970s, um, despite having, you know, pretty good job security and some basic welfare uh, provisions, industrial workers in China never had workplace democracy. I think sometimes, uh, especially now, more than even before, there is some, at least on part of some on the left, there is some romanticism about uh, that period of Chinese history. And I think, again, there's a lot to be said about that period, which is very uh, uh, politically controversial uh, uh, among, among some people. But I think one thing that I think is hard to disagree is workers never had democracy in terms of decision-making, in terms of managing their work, their workplace. Uh, again, with the caveat they did enjoy better job security and some welfare uh, and and health insurance, etc. Uh, so when the when China start transitioning from uh, that period toward the market economy in the 1980s and 1990s, workers never had any say in the system because they never they were never in a position where they actually had uh, decision making power. Although there were some cases, you know, where state sector workers uh, resisted privatization of the state industry. Uh, there is a continuity in the sense that workers were always subject to control, you know, it could be by bureaucrats uh, or by capitalists, but they were never uh, really the ruling class of, of China for the last seven decades. Ashley, do you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say I agree with everything that Kevin was just saying. I'll just say that that China's position in in the world system is radically different today than it was in the period that Kevin was just summarizing, because Mao's China emerges out of a victorious nationalist revolution. I don't think it was a socialist revolution. It didn't wasn't led by working class people, and it didn't establish workers' um, democracy and production for human need. Um, instead, a bureaucratic ruling class established its dominance over the society and made a priority of national development, na national economic development, whose precondition was the exploitation of both workers and the peasantry in a process of what Marx called primitive accumulation of capital. Um, and the, the position that China was in was of an underdeveloped economy 
in a world system dominated by the Western powers squared off in a contest with the USSR's Eastern Bloc. And for a while, China was a part of that Eastern Bloc. And then it developed an antagonism with Russia itself and increasingly tried to make its own way in the world, leading at one point a block of non-aligned nations that were in between the two um, major blocks of uh, imperial conflict, the, the U.S.'s block with NATO powers and the USSR's Eastern Bloc um, powers. But throughout China's period from 1949 up to 1979, its top priority was national economic development. And that sometimes included a classic five-year plan like Stalin's Russia pioneered, vacillating with attempts to rush the process of development, like with Mao's Great Leap Forward when he tried to you know, overcome the underdevelopment with acts of sheer will that produced a gigantic economic catastrophe and a famine um, in, in, in the country. And so then the country went back to a kind of state-led um, national development five-year plan um, in, in the wake of the disaster of the Great, Great Leap Forward. But throughout, from, from 1949 up through really today, the priority of the state has been national economic development. It's pursued different strategies. In the, in the period up to 1979, it was more an autarkic strategy of um, a separation from the world economy. And since no 1979, it's been one of integration uh, within the world economy in an attempt to compete within the broader system of global capitalism. Yeah. Could you just pick up on that um, the last point? I mean, we go back to the end of the 1970s after Mao's death and Deng Xiaoping uh, and the group around him uh, came to, into the, the control of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. China begins to reorient itself in relation to the global economy, to go in relation to global capitalism. So could you just give listeners a bit of an introduction to events took place between the late 1970s and the end of the 20th century with respect to China's relationship to global capitalism. Yeah, well, the, I'll, I'll begin and then Kevin, you should jump in with what, what your take is on this period. But I think that the key thing is that China in the early 1970s emerged from the Cultural Revolution in uh, a deep political and economic um, crisis. That is, that it was falling in, further and further behind in the competition within the world world system for, you know, in its case, national economic um, uh, development. And the whole whole world capitalist system entered a crisis in the the 1970s. And in in China, it took a particularly acute form of a fight between um, factions within the bureaucracy, one that wanted to carry on um, in some ways the tradition of the uh, of the cultural revolution that Mao had pioneered, including his widow was part of one faction. And another faction around Deng Xiaoping was committed to an opening up um, to, the, to the world economy. So there was a sharp faction fight within the Chinese ruling class, within the bureaucratic ruling class between these two different strategies, uh, a kind of continuity with a, a, an autarkic method of development and a reorientation um, on, um, toward integration with the, with the world economy. And Deng Xiaoping won 
that factional battle and pioneered a strategy of instead of separate autarkic national development of opening China both internally to uh, capitalist market mechanisms and externally to global capitalism's um, international market mechanisms. So he opened the, the process of marketization by encouraging township valley enterprises, township village enterprises um, to develop in the countryside, um, allowing the, the com companies to emerge and hire workers and um, develop various industries. And also opening special economic zones, um, catering to multinational corporations to use um, Chinese labor as cheap labor to manufacture for, for, the, for the world economy. So you can see there's a dramatic reorientation of the economic strategy away from autarkic national development based on internal exploitation of the, the country's laboring force, its working class and its peasantry towards um, marketization and an orientation on the uh, global capitalist system. Predictably, what this does is create a dynamic of all the kind of normal laws of capitalist uh, growth and crisis. And so at the end of the 1970s, um, uh, I mean, at the end of the 1980s, there develops both an economic crisis and a real desire um, uh, on the part of especially students, but also the broader working class for democratization to go along with marketization of the economy. And that produced the gigantic Tiananmen Square uprising, um, which included not only students, but also sections of the, the working class. And Deng Xiaoping um, put that down with the utmost brutality. Um, and for a while, it returned China to a condition of relative isolation. But soon the corporations um, lobbied the governments of, uh, of, uh, of the West, in particular the United States and the European capitalist powers, to reopen the spigot of investment in, in uh, China. And in the course of the 1990s, you have a massive return to international investment in China and a serious expansion of the Chinese economy as more capital floods into the global capital floods into the country, sets up um, uh, operations in uh, new special economic uh, zones. And also um, you have the increased privatization of sections of the previously um, state-owned industry. And so you have China's deep integration with the world economy really begin to take off. That said, one of the things that the Chinese bureaucracy has done is not go full scale into a neoliberal direction. They held on to whole sections of the economy under state control. So they have their state-owned enterprises or basically state capitalist industries in the commanding heights of the economy and strategic sectors um, uh, around, in particular, um, uh, oil and natural gas and others that are going to be at the heart of um, uh, of, uh, of the economy. Um, so they balance between a state-owned system and an opening to both domestic and international private capital. Um, and that contradictory dynamic, and for a while, led the U.S. in particular to be wary of whether uh, China should be admitted to the World Trade Organization. 
And finally, at the end of the 1990s, the U.S. decides, well, they still have their state-owned enterprises, but will open will allow China to join the WTO um, at the end of the 1990s, going into the early 2000s. And once that happens, China really takes off as an economic power in the in the world system and ascends up the uh, up the ranks of the world economy rapidly to become the second second largest economy in in the world. Kevin, do you have anything you'd like to add about the late 20th century that I I would just mention one thing I think it's important for listeners to understand, and that's that uh, there was no grand plan. Uh, it was a really a trial and error process, a process of experimentation um, that led to the Deng Xiaoping and the you know key figures in the Chinese ruling class uh, moving from where they were in the late 1970s through to um, you know, the situation we find ourselves in in the 21st century. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think there was not only no grand plan. Uh, if you look at the the period from the the sort of the the meat. 1970s up until even now, you know, there was a series of crises, you know, I actually mentioned earlier about the crisis uh, of just after the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and there was a crisis toward the end of to the mid and end of 1980s. And again, a little bit of crisis toward the end of 1990s. And then during the Great Recession of 2007 and 2008, there, there, and it has both, you know, economic dimensions and political dimensions um, so very often the, the, the leadership of the CCP would re- try to respond, uh, to this crisis, you know, sometimes in a very haphazard way. Uh, and, and so there's not only no grand plan, uh, for the, you know, for this kind of capitalist transition, it was really just sort of constantly, uh, responding to crisis. Uh, but very often, you know, you may temporarily resolve one crisis, but then, uh, you may, uh, uh, exacerbate other aspects of crisis. So it's, it's never just kind of smooth transition. Um, I think I also want to mention the, the, maybe the global aspect of this. So there are both, both as Ashley was mentioning the internal dimensions, which is, for example, the, the kind of political crisis, uh, in the 1970s after the cultural revolution. There's a yin for, for change, uh, 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 in, in, in society. Uh, there's kind of economic crisis, even though there's, Having industrialization for your average uh, residents in China, uh, consumer uh, consumption remains very low. Um, it's part of that kind of repression or uh, sort of, uh, of of consumption in order to uh, feel the economy, feel having industrialization. So there's already a lot of discontent, but there's also the global dimension, which uh, you know obviously in the 1980s is the crisis of uh, uh, world communism, right? So there's already a sense that, um, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was in, in trouble, Eastern Europe was in trouble. How, how would you move forward? So I think, I think that global dimension also was very important. And then just finally, you know, I, I think, uh, while I was, when I was preparing for this interview, <clears throat> I just suddenly thought about, um, the recent visit by, uh, Henry, Henry uh, Kissinger, uh, <laughs> at the age of a hundred, uh, he went to China again, um, you know, it's it's quite interesting to think about the timing uh, of this. Uh, you know, he of, obviously with all his war crimes in in Southeast Asia, in uh, Chile, and and other many other places, uh, he was considered has been considered a friend to the Chinese people by the Chinese state um, because he was instrumental in uh, opening up the relationship in rapprochement with uh, between U.S. and China in the 1970s through his visits to China with Nixon uh, and what. I actually was saying what that led to was basically China opening up its uh, economy, 
and and began to be incorporated into uh, global economy, uh, capitalist world economy. So that was very instrumental in 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 like the U.S. and China is really instrumental in uh, in uh, in collaborating to uh, integrate China. So you know, for for a long time, the U.S.-China relationship is again. It's, be hard to think back now because how much tension there is to think actually there was a period of like two three decades when u.s and china relationship were very close sure there were there was there were problems in, along the way but there was also a, a, a consensus that that china economic development is both good in terms of uh opening up its market providing cheap labor but also by uh politically that this always this notion that if China economic growth continues, its uh, politics is going to democratize. So there was this cons- assumption that sustains uh, uh, U.S.-China cooperation for much of the 1980s, 90s, and even uh, most of the two- early 2000s as well, up until the last uh, 10 years or so. So I think it's remem- important to remember that that somehow that, 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 that there was always that tension. Uh, actually, the U.S. was very instrumental in in integrating China into global capitalism. I'll just add so, to that, that, just a quick point, that I think it's important to remember that that China coming online was instrumental was an instrumental part of the big neoliberal boom from the beginning of the 1980s up through the Great Recession because it provided a cheap labor source for the, for the world economy that helped drive down on an international scale the cost of labor. So if you think about what happened in all the advanced countries, they engaged in lean production to squeeze as much as possible out of their domestic working class and replace workers with machine, make the remaining workers work longer and harder for less money, and then globalize to find cheap labor havens and China was at the heart of that. So in in and that and that produced the phenomenon that uh Kevin was just explaining of what what's his name called Chimerica, like the combination of China and America as really two parts mm-hmm. of the giant neoliberal boom that benefited both states, but also, you know, as we'll talk about, has now brought them into increasing conflict as that boom has uh, been replaced by a period of crisis and slump. So, Ashley, you'd mentioned that in 2001, end of 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization. Can you to say a little bit about how Chinese imperialism developed between 2001 and the adoption of the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. Yeah, this is this is the period of China's takeoff as an economic and then geopolitical and to a lesser extent, but increasingly so, a military power in its own right. As I was saying earlier, China dramatic. If you look at the growth charts. China grows, grows, grows through the neoliberal boom with ups and downs and the periods of crisis at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. And then in the uh, um, and during the Asian financial crisis has a little bit of a setback um, and has a little bit of a setback around 2001 again. But after 2001, um, and the recovery of the, the world world system up through the Great Recession, there is a massive expansion um, of the of the Chinese economy. And that's when it really ascends up the um, uh, up the in, uh, rankings of uh, overall economic power to become the second largest economy. And with that, um, it becomes increasingly uh 
uh, economically assertive, geopolitically assertive, and militarily assertive. And that's happening at the same time as U.S. imperialism is going into its own crisis. Um, part of that brought on by the rise of China as a potential economic competitor as a result of the neoliberal boom, but most dramatically the Washington Washington's defeat in Iraq, um, which bogs it down in two decades of counterinsurgency, and then the Great Recession, which hammers the U.S. and Europe in particular hard. Um, but China engages in a massive stimulus plan, um, the largest um, uh, as a share of GDP in the world, and that ex super accelerates the Chinese expansion. So at that point, um, after the uh, recovery from the brief crisis in 2009, China um, becomes really the growth center of the world uh, world economy, and much of the world uh, in the global south is um, kept in boom because of their exports of raw materials to the industrial might of, of China. And I think at that point, you have within the bureaucracy, particularly under Xi Jinping, um, a, a sense of an opportunity to take advantage of on the three fronts of the economy, geopolitics, and military projection. And so Xi Jinping um, uh, basically sees the moment to project China economically into the world system as not only a site for um, uh, exploitation of cheap Chinese labor, but a potential source of developing whole sections of the world. So they launched the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this giant $1 trillion um, project between $1 trillion and $8 trillion project when they designed it to um, extend loans and credits to over 150 countries around the world um, to help nominally help them develop, but it also serves a subsidiary function of uh, establishing extractivist industries in a lot of these countries to export raw materials back to China and make China a new hub of the world economy and a potential rival um, to, to the United States. And so China in the process becomes a major exporter of foreign direct investment. And it, uh, along with that, it begins to develop geopolitical relationships all around the world, not only geopolitical relationships, but security relationships as it begins to assert its interests along with the economy, economic interests it's asserting in the world. So it develops all sorts of pacts, most importantly, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization with Russia and Central Asian states that have, has expanded to include countries as observers like um, Iran and also the BRICS block, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa block, which also is very geopolitically important. And parallel to this is the modernization of the Chinese military, and in particular, the establishment of island bases in the South China Sea to project, uh, project China's uh, power um, within the Asia Pacific, and also to um, uh, deter the kind of ongoing presence of the United States in the Asia Pacific. Remember, the United States is really the main Asian Pacific power against which China is rising 
Um, and then China really invests in developing its navy, naval capacities to deter and confront um, the U.S. forces, but also the states within the Asia-Pacific, developing all sorts of antagonisms, especially over the island bases with uh, other countries in, in the region. So you have this rise of China as an economic power, a geopolitically assertive power, and increasingly military power over the course of the 2000s up through the launching of Belt and Road. And not only that, basically saying with the, in 2015 with the launch of China 2025, that China is going to jump up the value chain, that it's going to become a high-tech capitalist power, that it's not just going to be an export processing operation, but it's going to start investing in semiconductor manufacturer, you know, manufacturing of its own um, uh, telecommunications equipment. You think of Huawei um, and also of its uh, solar industry and electrical vehicle industry. And that brings it into competition at a higher level of comp of conflict with the European, Japanese, and uh, US manufacturers and companies. So you see the emergence of this new capitalist and imperialist power in the in the shape of China under Xi Jinping. Kevin, is there anything you'd like to add to, to what Ashley said? And can you also explain a little bit in more detail what the Belt and Road Initiative is and what its goals are? Sure, I, I think I, I really, I can still remember, you know, you can really feel the the growing confidence of the Chinese state and, and and certain section of the public as well in China throughout the you know the first decade of the the twenty first century uh, because of the economic growth because of the 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 you know um, the in a way the the ability to project power at the global stage or at least show its power at global stage you can see that the self confidence gaining uh, in that period. There, there was this kind of um, um, sort of philosophy, if you will, of sort of laying low uh, uh, on the part of the Chinese state for, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, it wants to uh, not, you know, uh, be flashy about its power. But you, you see that gradually being cast away in the 2000s and, and, and especially after the 2010s. Uh, and, and a couple of results I, I should mention and, and actually already touched upon briefly uh, a couple of results of that economic development, one is industrial or capacity. Uh, China is so good at producing things that it's it's can't really consume what's being produced and higher wages uh, among the working class. Uh, you know, it started off as uh, mostly um, recent uh, rural immigration to the cities, working on very low wages um, in low-skilled jobs. Uh, but through both demographic changes, but also, you know, very importantly, workers' uh, struggles, uh, wages were growing very fast, sometimes double digit uh, per year, but, you know, from very low base, but it was growing very fast. So by the uh, end of the, the the first decade of 2000s, uh, of the 21st century, uh, you know, the, the kind of wage uh, advantage in China is no longer uh, as much as before compared to, say, uh, Southeast Asia or other parts of the world. So you began to see capital moving uh, both within China and, and also out of China. And that comes to the point about uh, about one by one road. But I should also mention briefly, uh, this is also around 2012, 2013, is when China started to deindustrialize. Um, deindustrialization in the sense of the percentage of uh, the, the sort of decline 
a percentage of uh, industrial workers as a percentage of the the, the labor force uh, that started to decline. That peaked around 2012-2013 and started to decline, uh, and and that actually also uh, led to uh, a decline in, in worker struggles uh, in the manufacturing sector. Uh, which is something else I think is important to to keep in mind that that the that not only the political economy but also in terms of labor movement labor struggle. So BRI, so the Belt and Road Initiative, um, I think it's useful to maybe think of that in terms of three dimensions or underpinnings: one is economic, one is geopolitical, and one is ideological. The economic dimension uh, is, uh, I think, the fact that China Chinese capitalism reached a stage where it needs to or it wants to export its capital for higher profit uh, margins uh, and, and, and to play into places where there's lower uh, labor cost and also to develop overseas markets for, for, for the products that China is producing. So that's not really surprising to, you know, your listeners, David, but, you know, this is the kind of economic dimension. There's also the geopolitical dimension, which is that, you know, China really wants to chart its own system of trade and diplomatic relations uh, in part because I think the more established global trade and financial institutions like the WTO and IMF are, uh, and the World Bank are not very friendly toward China essentially because they're not started by China, they're not really controlled by China. So there are also accusations, allegations against Chinese, uh, 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 China dumping its, its product into the US and European markets. So in a way that China was trying to chart its own uh, institutions and 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 this is part of the you know there are other security and and uh, and trade relations uh, institutions that Ch- China was setting up, uh, but this is a, a key piece of that geopolitical uh, which is linked to the economic but also geopolitical dimension. But I, I think it's also important to emphasize there is also a um, ideological underpinning to this. Uh, that's why it's called Belt Belt and Road, right? It's, it's one Belt and Road recalling this kind of. Uh, bygone year of Chinese glory, right? Glorious history in which China was kind of the center of the world. It has all those trade relations with uh, uh, other countries, uh, other uh, nations or uh, empires in, in in Asia, Europe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I think I think this is really linked to to the whole ideological project of uh, of the China dream or the, the reviving the China nation. Uh, uh, so, so I think this is also kind of, if you will, a, 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 a prestige project. So it's, it's, it's all that geopolitical, it's all that economic underpinning, but it's also ideological. And that also means, just to finish on that point, sometimes it's done in a very haphazard way. Sometimes mm-hmm. the, the announcement and the, the news are actually sounds better than the reality. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, in part, it's, 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 it's kind of like to be expected because it's such a big, a project, uh, the implementation is going to be very uneven. Um, but I, I think also sometimes, you know, Chinese investment that went back uh, to decades ago, like uh, that was made decades ago, also get, you know, uh, wrapped under this BRI kind of umbrella. Uh, and of course, you know, running to all the problem with local government, with, with labor, with environmental groups. Uh, and I think I recently uh, uh, read uh, that Italy is considering to withdraw from the project. So I think it's kind of, it started really well, if you will, but kind of falling apart to some degree. But it does have, uh, I think, has different differentiated impacts uh, in different parts of, of the world. Um, 
but overall, I think it's uh, it's 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 all that. But it's, I think so. It's a project that is also uh, uh, at least in partial crisis. It's interesting because, of course, we probably are more familiar uh, with the overreach of the U.S. ruling class and its tendency to sometimes announce, you know, or boast about things that it can't actually follow through on. But that's not a property unique to one ruling class. Uh, far from it. So um, we've touched on the issue of military power, which is, of course, one aspect of imperialism. So, Ashley, can you share some thoughts about how you assess the, the power of the Chinese military to act outside of China's land borders at the moment? Yeah, I think the beginning point when you talk about Chinese imperialism um, is just to reassert that although um, China's a rising power, its military power is um, very small compared to the United States. If you look at the U.S., the U.S. spends several times what the Chinese military um, spends, and like the, the Biden's latest budget is eight hundred eighty-six billion dollars. I think the last um, Chinese military budget I think came in around three hundred um, billion dollars. So you're talking about an annual expenditure by the U.S. that's much much larger. The U.S. has around eight hundred military bases all around the the world, and it has an unrivaled um, international uh, air force and you know navy up until recently and uh, um armed presence all around the world in particular in asia if you look at the bases that are in the asia pacific that the us has they've had many for a long time most importantly in south korea but also in okinawa and guam and you can just list them all out so there are already bases that are inherited from the cold war that encircle china so that's the the military environment in which um china is beginning to operate and assert itself and so the 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 first thing that china has done which I talked about a little bit, is, is, is transform these island reefs into military bases in the South China Sea and claim um, a huge section of the South China Sea as its historic waters. And that it's doing for several reasons. Number one, it's a deterrent to the U.S., which has all these military bases in the region. Number two, there are enormous fisheries in the area that are contested places. And so the Chinese um, economy has an interest in declaring those waters as part of its fisheries and undersea um, reserves of oil and natural gas, which are also contested. So China wants to claim those. And then the final thing, these are international shipping um, uh, waterways that are key choke points in the world economy, places like the Straits of Malacca, where, you know, an incredible amount of world commerce passes. So whoever controls the oceans controls um, all sorts of natural resources, ability to determine what happens with international commerce, et cetera. So China's built these bases within um, within the South China Sea. And then the second thing it's, it's done is modernize its military downsize its um, army and increase investments in the in in its navy so that now has um, a couple of uh, aircraft carriers um, which are far fewer than what the US has but it also has a huge fleet I think it's larger than the US now uh, of of Navy ships and those ships are designed to in in a strategy of area access, um, uh, uh, denial 
so that the U.S. cannot can be deterred from coming into waters that the, that China claims. Um, so it's modernized its navy, and then it's just begun to establish international uh, um, military bases. So it has one formal base in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa, which it's nominally an anti-terrorist, anti-piracy operation. Um, it's also considering establishing um, bases in several other countries in Sri Lanka, Equatorial New Guinea, um, Pakistan, and Cambodia. So China is just beginning to establish a toehold. And a lot of those countries that it's establishing those military bases in are wrapped up with the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and then the final thing is that it's increasingly modernizing its air force and um, intercontinental ballistic um, capacity. So it is rapidly developing those uh, those abilities militarily to pair with its economic and geopolitical assertion. But we have to keep all this in, uh, we have to qualify all of this just because the enormous lead and enormous power that the U.S. has compared um, to China. So it's a conflict between a rising power with these increasing um, uh, economic, geopolitical, and military capacities against a dominant power that has historically um, ruled, the, <laughs> ruled the waves and world international commerce since the end of the, the Cold War. But now it's becoming an antagonism because the U.S. is very concerned about this increasing military capacity because it's China getting in on the game that the U.S. has dominated. Did you add anything to that, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think we, you know, as leftists, you know, we in the U.S. or in Canada or in Europe, um, I think definitely the first thing we, we should acknowledge is the uh, still the enormous disparity between, say, the U.S. military power uh, and the Chinese military power. It's still not comparable despite all the modernization effort, as, as Ashley was mentioning, uh, in China, you know, uh, definitely the Chinese military has become more capable. Um, um, so that's the first thing to acknowledge. But within within the region, uh, if you're for residents in, in Taiwan, the mil military threat is very yeah. real. Um, so, you know, there have been uh, wrapping up of, of military exercise around Taiwan, especially in the last couple of years since uh, the, the visit, some of the visits by uh, US, uh, American Congress uh, men and women um, um, and the closer economic ties, uh, sorry, not not just economic, but also military ties uh, between U.S. and Taiwan. So, so there have been uh, a lot more military exercise uh, and the, the threat of invasion. I, I don't think it's imminent in the sense that it's going to happen in the next few months. But I think that the threat is is itself is should be very should be taken very seriously uh, for sure. And of course, there are the territorial dispute between in the China in the South China Sea between. China and other countries in Vietnam, the Philippines, etc. Um, so within the region, China's military presence and powers uh, remains very powerful. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, you know China has really not fought it, uh, any war since 1979. Uh, that was with Vietnam. So we really don't know how capable the military is, really, because we really haven't seen it in action in any major military conflict for 40 years. Um, so we know definitely that the projection of its military power within the region is very real, but how capable it is, I, I don't think anyone knows until there is a military conflict, uh, you know, really how much, uh, you know, military, its military can project its power on the ground. 
Um, if I could mention one final thing, because um, sometimes I, 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 I sometimes I write about this briefly in, in articles around U.S.-China rivalry, is there was a war between U.S. and China uh, that's called Korean War. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the U.S., sometimes it's called the Forgotten War, right? That's you know, people remember Vietnam, remember Second World War, but Korea is kind of forgotten uh, for many reasons, political reasons, in the U.S. But that's you know, the Korean War is very much remembered within China, uh, and uh, and it's it's obviously it's war between the two Koreans, but it's it's very often it's also confrontation between the Chinese military and the U.S. led uh, UN uh, military um, army. So that that was uh, that was still very much remembered today uh, in China. So so th- th- there's sense of you know a uh, um, a military conflict with the U.S. It's, it's not a, a distant memory. Um, um, you know, it's still people who are alive at the time were still very much uh, remembering that in China. And sometimes it's been you know in movies and and in in televisions in in, in literature. So it's it's. This and 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 there are other uh, military skirmishes, conflicts with the U.S. that again sometimes got forgotten uh, in the nineteen in the nineteen nineties. For example, um, uh, when uh, I think uh, there were clashes of of military aircrafts, uh, of American U.S. military aircraft near Chinese borders. Um, so I think on the one you know. Uh, conflict between you and China now happened because both are nuclear powers, but I, I don't think this is not necessarily how it's remembered or how it's thought about uh, say in China. Uh, the threat of a military conflict as in China is still real in people's mind. Um, I think that's an important point to, to keep in mind when we think of uh, US-China rivalry. Now, I'd like to turn to talk about some of the more specific politics on the left here, because there are more than a few people on the left today who will say, well, maybe China is capitalist, but it's not imperialist. And there are also some people on the left who would say that China is not capitalist at all. So, Kevin, how would you respond to those claims? Yeah, I think really one has to come up with a very convoluted argument to argue that China is not capitalist, first of all. Uh, I think I think it's it's kind of, to me, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, even up until maybe five years ago or seven, six, seven years ago, there used to be a lot of clarity on the left. I think more clarity than now that that Chinese is capitalist. Uh, but now it's often very muddied. And some people on the left are just willing to say, oh, maybe it's capitalist, maybe it's not. Uh, we don't know. So let's leave that question to the side. I I, I, I don't think that's a really helpful approach. Uh, so, so my perspective is the perspective of, of labor. Uh, and the, the question I always want to pose is, uh, are workers in China uh, experiencing capitalist exploitation in which, you know, their surplus value, their surplus labor is appropriate by, by capital. I think that's hard to deny that's the case. Um, and other things like, you know, the fact that China, China's state sector is very, uh, prominent. I mean, that's another argument against, uh, the idea of China is capitalist. I mean, there are many historically and contemporary capitalist states. Uh, where there there is a, a big state-owned or state or public sector, and of course there are people arguing the Chinese state intervening very actively in the economy. Again, that's just part of parts of of maybe not neoliberal capitalism, but it's it's part of uh, 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 capitalism uh, historically. So those are not the reasons why uh, the Chinese economy is not capitalist. I think on the question of imperialism is a lot lot of trickier, and I want to want to leave more time to actually. Because I think he really 
that's the heavy lifting uh, to think about this question. But I, I want to maybe separate out um, the disagreement about imperialism. Um, I don't think there is one disagreement. I think there are different kinds of disagreement. And I think there are, we need to treat it uh, differently. So I think there's theoretical disagreement. I think there's empirical disagreement. And I think there's a political disagreement. So the theoretical disagree, uh, disagreement goes back to David when you open up, uh, open the, the the conversation is how you define imperialism. I think uh, you know again, I, I will leave it to actually to really talk more about the the definition of imperialism, how we should think about what is what imperialism is and what imperialist global system is. So I think there's a theoretical question, uh, a theoretical disagreement. I think also important is the empirical question of what's really happening. Uh, in places like, say, uh, Africa or South America or Southeast Asia, to what extent uh, Chinese investment and Chinese uh, uh, extension of its power is is uh, is imperialistic or is is exploitative? I think that question is also not always agreed upon. Uh, I think, and I think things are really changing very fast as well. So, you know, something that people said a couple of years ago may no longer hold true empirically even today. So, I think there's there there's on the theoretical and on, on the empirical level, I think there could be at least productive disagreements. Now, I think what is not productive is a political disagreement in the sense that uh, because people think U.S. is the predominant imperial power, therefore its enemy, uh, including China, Russia, etc., cannot be imperialists, or at least they're the victims of U.S. imperialism. I think that's not a productive way or useful way or correct way of looking at, of looking at the imperialist uh, global system right now. Uh, but I do think on the first two questions, I think at least there should be more discussion. Uh, but unfortunately, I think there's not much of that. Uh, the, the more of the, the, the disagreement is the third kind, which is basically political. Like we don't want to even talk about China's imperialist power, regardless of how you define it, regardless of how many facts, how much fact we bring to bear to this question. Um, so I, I, I would just leave it to actually really who has done the intellectual heavy lifting on this question. Um, I, I, I agree with everything that Kevin was just saying. I just, I think the, the, on the first, I think the questions are interrelated. And if you get the capitalist question right, you're going to get the imperialist question right. So to deny that China is capitalist today, you really have to put blinders on to the realities of the Chinese economy, the Chinese state, and the condition of workers in, in China all of its corporations, whether they're state-owned or privately held, um, are integrated with global capitalism today and are competing on in an internal market and on the international market. That is unden undeniable. I mean, the, the state corporations are listed on stock exchanges in Shanghai, and they're invested in other countries, especially through BRI. So its state economy is thoroughly integrated into global capitalism. And we have to remember that the bulk of the Chinese economy is actually privately owned. So private capital is, you know, the majority of the economy at this at this at this point and they are competing in the internal and the international market as well and that logic of competition compels them um, to exploit workers and to compete 
um, to raise the rate of exploitation of workers. And it uh, so there, I, I think it really is impossible to deny that um, China is capitalist. And up until the hysteria of the kind of new Cold War rhetoric that the Republican right has whipped up, most of the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and the business press was singing one soon that song that China China was um, uh, capitalist. So I think it's undeniable that China's economy and its state-owned and privately owned um, sectors are competing for profit and accumulation in a, in the world system, and the working class is exploited within within that competition. Um, and so all the things that Kevin said about the condition of workers is 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 absolutely the case. But from really the 1970s on, it's combined this kind of state capitalism with the private um, free market capitalism in a specific fashion in China. And so there are other ideological blinders that people have from uh, a definitional position, which says that if there's state ownership, it's not capitalist. But I think as Kevin pointed out, there's a long history, especially in Europe and in other parts of the world where state ownership is part and parcel of capitalism and not separate from it. So I think if you get the question of China being capitalist right, you're going to get the question of China being imperialist right, because the the, the nature of of capitalism is to is to produce imperialism. Why is that the case? Because corporations, both state-owned and privately owned, compete um, to maximize profit, and that um, competition drives them beyond their national borders to compete um, for position in the world market to big to uh, hoard a larger source of amount of the profit in the the world system. So all. All capitalist economies have imperialism in their DNA. They have to break out beyond their national markets to the to the world market to compete for profit and market share and um, resources and cheap cheap labor. That's the very nature of capitalism, as Marx talks about it in in um, Das Kapital. So it's built into the to, to capitalism this expansionary dynamic. And corporations, state-owned and privately owned, turn to their home state, the state that they um, grew up within, um, to defend their interests globally and to um, uh, negotiate trade deals to their advantage and to um, establish political relations to their advantage. And it's a contradictory process, but what that does is mean that um, economic competition produces state competition, geopolitical competition, and inevitably military competition. So with China's rise from being a marginal economy in the world system to the second largest economy in the world with the second largest military budget and a growing network of, uh, of uh, political alliances, it is become an imperialist power that is exporting capital, that is engaged in the exploitation of countries in the global south based on extractivist industries that it's funding. It's building a military to, to protect those interests, and it is building geopolitical relationships with other powers to compete with its main rival um, and dominant power in the world system, the, the United States. So you really have you know, a situation where if it 
quacks like a duck, walks like a duck. It is a duck. In other words, that China is capitalist and it's engaged in capitalist development of the very familiar characteristics and it's developed imperialist qualities and it's an imperialist power. And how else can you explain the rivalry now at the center of the world system between the first largest um, economic power, the United States and China, except by understanding it as a capitalist-driven economic rivalry with military and geopolitical dimensions to it. So I think it's pretty obvious that it's imperialist just because it's capitalist and it's so powerful today. Well, this takes us to a major point of conflict between the U.S. and China, and that is Taiwan. So Kevin, could you start us off with a very brief history for listeners about um, just an introduction to the, the, the history of Taiwan? Sure, I'll be very brief. Um, you know, ta- Taiwan just historically has been part of uh, uh, different Chinese empires, uh, but it has also been colonized by the Dutch uh, for a few hundred years and then by the Japanese uh, in the early parts of the 20th century. Um, so, but the, the really, the useful starting point is the, the defeat of the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, in China in uh, the second half of uh, 1940s uh, during the Chinese Civil War with the Communist Party. So the defeated Nationalist Party fled uh, from mainland China to Taiwan and basically set up its own base there. Uh, and in the process, it also uh, cracked down upon uh, local uprisings against its occupation uh, because it, the, the Nationalist Party was uh, very much seen as occupier, uh, not, not just a, another Chinese uh, ruler, but an occupier of Taiwan. Uh, so f- between 1950s and the 1980s, under the Nationalist Party in Taiwan, uh, there was there were decades of what, what's what's called the Wet Terror, uh, where uh, dissident political dissidents were persecuted, were jailed, exiled, and opposition uh, silenced. So it was a period of dictatorship by the Nationalist Party until a uh, opposition movement uh, grew, emerged, and grew very strong uh, in the 1980s. And they ended up pressuring the Nationalist Party into uh, political democratization in the 1990s when they held the first democratic election in Taiwan. Uh, and I, I think it's important to also emphasize that even though the majority of the population in Taiwan are what you could say Han, uh, uh, ethnically Han Chinese, uh, there is an indigenous population in Taiwan and they have been heavily persecuted by both by the Japanese and the Japanese uh, occupation and then also under the Nationalist Party. Uh, I think there, there, there's now more recognition of the indigenous, indigenous population in Taiwan, but I think it's important to bear in mind that it's not just high ethnic Chinese, it's there are also uh, indigenous population in Taiwan that face a lot of repression. Um, I think the in the uh, I think this links back to the question of of U.S. and China is uh, so Taiwan under the dictatorship in the uh, 60s and 70s uh, underwent uh, land reforms and industrialization. So actually, Taiwan was one of the the four tigers, the original four tigers. Um, it became industrialized and become became wealthy by the 1980s and 90s. Uh, that's that's why it was really actually well placed when China, uh, mainland China, opened up its economy, uh, opened up its market uh, for investment. Uh, Taiwan, along with Hong Kong capital, were the earliest investment uh, from overseas into China, and uh, uh, and Taiwanese capital really made a huge amount of profit from the initial investment. 
because of the disparity between the the wages, the salaries in Taiwan, in mainland China. So Taiwanese capital was actually a, a huge beneficiary of China's economic uh, uh, opening up. And a lot of the, the Taiwanese companies and Hong Kong companies essentially serve as uh, uh, local suppliers and contractors to multinational companies in Japan, Korea, US, Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, obviously now we know the really well the, the example of Foxconn, uh, which is a Taiwanese electronics uh, supplier uh, maker that produced for brands in uh, in sub- like Samsung and, and, and Apple, etc. But it, it's not an isolated example. It's there are very very similar uh, Taiwanese capital that that operated in in Milan, China, um, and what it did. And I think this is also another point worth keeping in mind is. Uh, in the 1990s, when Taiwanese capital started to invest in China, it essentially moved its factories to mainland China. And that actually uh, undermined the labor movement in Taiwan. Uh, uh, remember, this was a period of democratization. Actually, there was a lot of hope for it, uh, uh, for the labor movement and other social movement to, to play a big role in, in Taiwanese politics. But be- partly, partly because of that relocation from Taiwan to mainland China, the labor movement in Taiwan actually became much weaker as a result because of the factories, a lot of industrial capacity were gone by then. So I think that's also when we talk about, think about US-China rivalry, when we think about uh, geopolitical uh, tensions, I think it's also important to bear in mind the, the impact on, on, on workers, on, on labor movement in, in all those places, in China, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in, and also in the US and, and, and other places. So Ashley, can you explain how you see China fitting in Sorry, how you see Taiwan fitting into global capitalism, and then a little more about um, how it relates to China and the U.S. today and their rivalry. Yeah, I, just building off what um, Kevin was saying, after if you think about it as a triangle, the U.S., China, and Taiwan um, in the nineteen up until the Nixon and Kissinger going to China, the U.S. recognized Taiwan. <laughs> and its claim to be China. And then it flipped to recognizing the People's Republic of China, Mao's China, as China and developed a one China policy and had a position vis-a-vis um, Taiwan of strategic ambiguity because China, mainland China, the People's Republic of China, always regarded um, ta- Taiwan as a renegade province that it wanted to annex and bring back into um, China proper as it saw it. And so the U.S. had this position of what it called strategic ambiguity about Taiwan's status, that it didn't formally recognize it, but it de facto recognized it. It, as as a country, as a nation state, it also had a policy of ambiguity around whether it would defend Taiwan in the case of a Chinese um, attack. So uh, it would both provide military hardware to Taiwan, but be unclear if it was considered an ally that the U.S. would defend in the case of an outbreak of war, in case of a Chinese um, invasion of Taiwan. So the the policy that the U.S. had was hedging its bets, essentially, of recognizing China, but also um, de facto having a relationship with, with Taiwan. That was very copacetic for all parties concerned 
during the neoliberal boom period, where you have this profound integration of both the Chinese and American economies, but also the integration of Taiwan with both economies as well. Um, and that, that um, produced this phenomenon that Kevin was just summarizing of the development of Taiwan as, a, as one of the original tiger economies of the Asia Pacific. And also, and this is the most important thing, the center of the high-tech industry globally. And a, a good new book that summarizes all of this is by Chip Miller that just came out and his politics are iffy, but the book is brilliant called Chip War about, and it has whole chapters on the development of uh, Taiwan's uh, semiconductor industry. Um, but tai Taiwan becomes the epicenter of, of uh, the high-tech manufacturing, both based on plants that it has in Taiwan and its role in running factories in mainland um, China. So now the Taiwanese corporation TSMC and others produce 90% of the world's most advanced microchips. And those microchips are in everything from your Apple phone to your gross, to your washing machine, to your motor vehicle, um, to military planes, to regular commercial aircraft, like the F-35, um, the most advanced fighter jet that the U.S. has, is dependent on these microchips that are manufactured in, in Taiwan. So you have, you know, this deep integration of, of the three economies, Taiwan, the United States, and China, that also has strategic military applications. So it's all fine when all the countries are getting along. In fact, as Kevin was just saying, Foxconn produces most of the world's iPhones and most of their factories are in China. So you, and Foxconn is a Taiwanese corporation. So you have this profound integration of, uh, of these three economies. But with China's uh, dramatic rise as an economic power, its attempt to climb up the value chain through China 2025 and produce its own microchips that can um, uh, rival the high-tech ones that are produced in, in Taiwan. And with all the military applications, the U.S. becomes concerned that uh, uh, um, these microchips can fall into the hands of the Chinese state. And so you have the emergence of this chip war in which Taiwan is the central battleground. The chip war, what does that look like? Trump and Biden start putting sanctions on, on Chinese high-tech companies to prevent them from developing the high-end microchips and putting them in its um, military um, and also protect the U.S., um, from being dependent on any microchips that are coming from, from China. And in the case of Biden, trying to onshore the production of the high-end microchips into the United States so they're not vulnerable to um, um, a Chinese attack in the case of Taiwan. So what had been a copacetic triangle of economic and geopolitical relations suddenly becomes a battleground in which China's Taiwan is right at the heart of it. So China becomes more assertive of its claim over the renegade uh, province of Taiwan. The U.S. starts to use Taiwan um, in a, uh, and its support of Taiwan in a provocative way to irritate 
um, China and um, Pelosi's visit is one example. Biden has also blurred the policy of strategic ambiguity, making it seem like the U.S. would directly intervene to defend um, Taiwan against a Chinese military uh, uh, attack. Um, and so you see that you've got a situation where China and the U.S. are now at loggerheads and they're beginning to fragment the world economy in particular to, to pull apart this copacetic relationship into one that's increasingly antagonistic with their you know, sanctions and protectionism and this policy of de-risking, of disconnecting the U.S. and Chinese economies and strategic areas with military applications. So now it's become a profound antagonism and really a key flashpoint of a potential military conflict it that has massive repercussions for the world economy. Because as I said, 90% of the most advanced microchips, which are in everything, are produced by Taiwan. So the stakes of the Battle of Taiwan uh, over Taiwan between the US and China are extremely high. That said, I don't think there's any war coming anytime soon, but it's ominous what China has done in um asserting its uh, rights to the island with its military exercises, and then the massive military exercises that the U.S. has been conducting in the Asia Pacific, in particular around the Philippines. So this is a very frightening situation, and lost amidst all of this is the Taiwanese people's right to self-determination and their ability to be free of the interference and intervention by either um, imperial power, the immediate antagonist in the case of China, but also the United States, which is using the question of Taiwan for its own imperialist purposes, not in a genuine commitment to any kind of self-determination of the Taiwanese people. Thanks. Picking up on, on that, um, perhaps, Kevin, you could say a few things about uh, what the position of socialists in the West about Taiwan should be. Yeah, I, I agree with what uh, actually was sketching out, you know, I think at the very, very bottom, we should support Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese people's self-determination and, uh, you know, and, and, and against any aggression or coercion from anyone, right? Um, so I think that's the very basic position. Um, I also think, you know, the, uh, the provocation by uh, uh, the U.S. ruling class is uh, is escalating the tensions. Um, I think the Chinese uh, state is, uh, in in a way, being cornered. You know, I don't think, and I agree with actually here. I don't think there's any going to be any war anytime soon. Um, and I also don't think the Chinese the CCP leadership is interested in pursuing a military action if they can avoid it. I think some people may argue, well, you know, because the economy is not going well, maybe, you know, uh, the, the leadership can use this as a way to distract the public. Not impossible, but I also think it's it's smart enough to know it, it may backfire. And I, and maybe in a sense, I, I think the, the, the war, the, 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 inv the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, gave more pulse to the CCP leadership to think twice before it... Uh, it's a start any uh, uh, military um, incursion into into Taiwan. So I, 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 but having said all that, I think if being if they feel they are really being cornered, and if they feel they have to defend, uh, 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 you know, whatever territory claim over Taiwan because of popular pressure, you know, because the public may turn against the CCP if it is seen as not protecting its uh, territory and territorial claim over Taiwan. 
Do I think you may see a situation where there could be a serious military conflict? But regardless, you know, the people who are going to lose the most are the people in Taiwan. It's not going to be, well, there are going to be some military casualties on the, the Chinese side, and but I think the, the people who are going to bear, bear the most brutes will be the Taiwanese people. So I think it's important to de-escalate the tensions. Um, and I think as leftists in the US, in Canada, in other places, I think, uh, you know, of course, I think it's important to oppose any uh, uh, Western uh, provocations. But I think it should not be done at the expense of ignoring or overlooking uh, the rights of Taiwanese people for self-determination. Um, I should also say one thing. Uh, I think it's also important to pay attention to what the the uh, people, the progressive activists in 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 Taiwan are, are saying and thinking. You know, I I want uh, to encourage people to check out the publications called New Bloom. B L O M, which is a, a progressive publication in Taiwan um, uh, that publish regularly on on, on issues uh, in Taiwan and also the, the broader broadly in the Pacific, uh, Asia Pacific region um, to see what what leftists and what progressive people in Taiwan are actually thinking rather than just assuming what they are thinking or or or, or, or denying them a voice. Uh, and I, I I do want to point out maybe to wrap up this question there there's there, there's different opinions uh, in Taiwan uh, on the left. So there, if you want, there are kind of two lefts. One left is what, what's being called the pro-unification left, which used to be more progressive, right? Those are the people who are normally, uh, who often had uh, Marxist leanings uh, and, and they uh, supported uh, uh, some kind of un- unification with mainland China. Uh, decades ago, that was a in contact, that was a more progressive position to take. But now, by now, it's it's a very conservative position. It's basically mm-hmm. saying, uh, you know, we 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 really do not uh, care if China or Taiwan is capitalist or not, or what kind of uh, economic and political system uh, they have. We we just want to maybe avoid war and 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 uh, have unification. Uh, but there's also a, a another left, uh, again, for lack of a better term, uh, sometimes it's called uh, pro-independent uh, left. Um, but I think there, there's also uh, nuance in that position. Uh, not everyone is uh, advocating for right, outright or independence of Taiwan, uh, which to all intents and purposes is essentially a de facto independent state. Uh, I should mention that. But others are saying, you know, at least we, we don't want uh, we want to chart an independent progressive position on the U.S. Uh, on the Taiwan-China question uh, and U.S.-China question that is opposed to all sort of imperialism, U.S. imperialism, Chinese imperialism, but also opposed to capitalism in Taiwan, in China, in the U.S. So I think there's nuance in the position, but I think at the bottom that we should not ignore what people are in Taiwan are thinking uh, rather than just like, okay, you know, because U.S.-China are in conflict and U.S. is supporting Taiwan, therefore uh, let's let's ignore what what they they people in Taiwan say and and just oppose anything that Taiwan uh, does. I think that's a really, really misguided position to take. Okay. Um, one thing we haven't talked about that we spent like a few minutes just touching on at least uh, is the relationship between Russia and China. Since um, the, obviously Russia compared to China is a much smaller player within the world system. But Ashley, could you say a few things about uh, that relationship? Yeah, it's a complicated relationship. If you think if you think about the history, it's it's quite wild the twists and turns um, because during the Cold War, in the early part of the Cold War, China under Mao and uh, Stalin's Russia 
were allies. And then um, they became antagonists, largely because Mao thought that um, China was being reduced by uh, the USSR to a satellite and not being provided with the technical, military, and um, industrial support that um, China wanted. And then there was an actual border skirmish between China and the USSR. And for a a, a, a while, they had they broke off relationships in the in 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 reaction to that. And then Mao, Kissinger, and Nixon cut a deal, and suddenly. China is allied with U.S. imperialism, including doing supporting all sorts of reactionary forces all around the world, like Pinochet in Chile and many other, you know, dastardly regimes, South African apartheid, etc. So there, there was a flip on the part of China for its own geopolitical purposes um, to to cut a deal of, of collaboration um, with with the United States. Um, which had continued through the end of the Cold War and benefited economically, like we were talking about earlier, through that relationship. After the end of the Cold War, Russia emerges from the collapse of the USSR as a much diminished power in in the the world system, and so they 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 don't they they have um, in many ways the China looks at Russia as a cautionary tale of the consequences of if you lose um, party control of the the state. And so, and one of the big reasons they're so brutal in the crackdown on Tiananmen Square is they want to maintain the party state with a vengeance and avoid the fate of what happened in Russia and the Eastern Bloc of losing that party state um, uh, start party state control. So, you know, they 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 re- begin to develop new relations after the end of the Cold War, um, and that accelerates really in the 2000s under Putin, when Putin rebuilds the Russian state as a nuclear armed petropower, as a fossil capitalist player. And one of the big things that um, the Chinese economy needs is fossil fuels. It's one of the big consumers of fossil fuels in in the world. And so it begins to develop economic relations with with, uh, Russia. And those also morph into um, geopolitical relations through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is about really the coordination geopolitically of the border states between Russia and China. Um, which are the transit points for a lot of the the fossil fuels and um, uh, uh, materials that the Chinese economy uses. So they develop this geopolitical um, alliance. And then in particular, um, the... Uh, as the antagonism with the United States begins to develop, um, uh, China and Russia come closer together in opposition to the United States, and especially through the BRICS alliance, the Brazil-Russia-India-China alliance um, um, which has its own internal contradictions, but it's an important part of the development of a bloc um, in opposition to the United States, which is, you know, not uniform to say the least. But China and and uh, Russia, in particular, share this antagonism that's developing um, bet- between them and the United States, each for their own reasons. Russia and Eastern Europe and um, 
over over who controls their former um, empire, the U.S. and NATO or Russia and China with its antagonism that it's developing um, with the United States and the world economy. Um, so the, the, this all comes to a head with at the most recent Beijing, Beijing Olympics, which the United States boycotted um, over China's record of human rights abuses um, and in particular in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and, um, you know, the threats against Taiwan, et cetera. And so um, Russia, um, Putin and Xi Jinping meet in in uh, Beijing and they strike their friendship without limits um, alliance. Um, and I think that uh, in this alliance, we should be clear that China is now the dominant partner in the alliance. It's now the biggest economy. It has, you know, much more um, uh, geopolitical heft than Russia does. And um, it also has a um, integration with the world economy that it doesn't want to lose, which is a little bit different than how Russia operates. So out of that alliance, I think whether China knew it or not, I don't know, but I think that alliance was part of Putin feeling like he had the green light to intervene in Ukraine and, and in an act of brutal imperialist uh, aggression. Um, and China has uh, played a role of trying to uh, uh, it hasn't been critical of the intervention. It's tried to argue for some kind of peace negotiations, very much on Russia's terms. But I think it's very unhappy with what happened with Russia, Russian imperialism's invasion and attempted seizure of Ukraine, because it's enabled the U.S. to rally all of NATO behind it, remilitarize it, and get most of the NATO powers to adopt the increasingly belligerent policies towards China. So the US, for example, just got NATO to declare um, uh, China a country of strategic interests. So the US exploited the Russian imperialist invasion of Ukraine for its own purposes to rally its historic allies against China, which I think explains China's attempt to tamp the conflict down, even though, even as they maintain their alliance with, with Russia, because the repercussions for the Chinese economy of, say, Germany de-risking its economic relations with China would be gigantic, huge repercussions for China's uh, uh, um, uh, capitalist economy. So I think this is a very complicated relationship, we'll put it that way, in which China's the dominant power, the, the, the Russian state is really its dangerous little brother that it's trying to control, but it also has, you know, big dependencies on for, you know, fossil fuels in, in particular. So I think it's a complicated relationship and it's part of the frightening dynamic of this new multipolar, um, imperial order that we see where the U.S. is the dominant one, but now we have these rivals, China and, and Russia, around which there are flashpoints that are of great concern that could produce military conflicts, Ukraine being the obvious and immediate one. We have a war in Europe, a land war in Europe for the first time of this scale since World War II. And then um, 
we've got this flashpoint over Taiwan in the in the case of Asia, around which you have two, you know, three nuclear armed powers in an antagonism: Ukraine, you know, the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine, and the U.S. and China over Taiwan. So it's a very, you know, frightening moment that we're entering. So to close, then. Uh, what stance should socialists in so-called Western states, where most listeners to this podcast live, uh, take vis-a-vis China, uh, which is the imperialist enemy of our imperialist ruling classes? Kevin? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think it's definitely the right position to take to think that the main enemy is at home. You know, if you're Canadians or Americans, the, the main enemy is your own state. That's without a doubt. Uh that should be the priority. But I, I do think if we are truly internationalists, uh, as we should be as uh, socialists, uh, we want to support the working classes and other oppressed classes uh, and nations uh, elsewhere as well. So if, you, if we want to show solidarity, uh, it should not be with those, uh, it should be with those people, with the working classes, with oppressed people, not with their states. Uh, that distinction should be very, very clear. Um, you know, sometimes that, Distinction is not made clear, though. You know, you know, it it's becomes that the support for uh, Chinese states uh, is equated with supporting for the Chinese people. That's not the case at all. Uh, again, not to say that there's no support among the Chinese population for the Chinese state, but I also think that's you know our priority should be uh, with the people, with the class, uh, working classes, uh, not with the state. Um, I also think we should uh, take into account the fact that there's now, uh, well, by now, a very sensible, you know, Chinese and Taiwanese and Hong Kong diaspora in, you know, in the U.S. in Canada. Uh, of course, you know, uh, we or they or we are not monolithic politically. There are left wings, there are right wings, there are a lot of people in between. Uh, but I think for for a lot of us, you know, the question of China is not a distant question. It's something that is very close to us. So when we talk about this question of uh, the main, main enemy being at home, uh, you know, for a lot of diaspora groups or for a lot of uh, a large number of international students from China, from Hong Kong, and some from Taiwan, the question of China, U.S.-China rivalry and, and, and imperialism is, is not simply about opposing the Canadian or uh, American state. It's that, but it's also, can we go beyond that? Can we also show solidarity with uh, people uh, on the ground uh, to, to support their self-determination and and their you know being free from an intimidation, coercion, aggression. I think that that's a very important point to to keep in mind. Yeah, I'll just I'll just add to that. I agree with everything that Kevin was just saying. I'll just add that I think much of the left has not caught up with the changes in the world um, and are operating in outdated frameworks. And in particular, the outdated framework that people are operating in is the idea that we only have one imperialist power in in the world system. Um, And that was, you know, common sense for everybody when the U.S. emerged from the Cold War and it was like this superpower with no rival. And it was, you know, seeming to run the world as a new Rome through, you know, the international trade deals it was cutting through the international financial institutions, through the WTO. It had military bases all around the world and it was dictating seemingly the political dynamics of the whole world system. And the left developed rightly a knee-jerk opposition to that imperialism. 
Um, but as a whole discussion is talked about, that order of imperialism is now over. We've got a new situation in which there are inter-imperial rivalries that characterize the world system, and there are sub-imperial powers that are jockeying for regional position, um, you know, Saudi Arabia or Israel or, you know, other countries, Brazil, et cetera, that have um, geopolitical ambitions and economic, you know, sub-imperial ambitions of their, their own. In that circumstance, the kind of we only oppose U.S. imperialism is not up to the situation we find ourselves in. It doesn't give you a guide to operating in this new situation where you have imperial antagonisms and antagonisms um, over oppressed nations um, that are caught up in the inter-imperial inter antagonism. So our, our method should be very clearly, if you're in the West, your number one enemy is at home, but that doesn't mean you should give any political support to other imperial powers, be it China or Russia. That is, we should not adopt the politics of my enemy's enemy is my friend. An enemy is an enemy. It's not a friend. And instead of falling for that mistaken position, we should oppose the U.S., but also impose its rivals and build movements of solidarity with uh, struggles of oppressed nations and working classes and the left in those oppressed nations against whatever imperial power they're confronting, and especially make this argument in those movements that the choice is not to align the movement with this or that imperial power, but fight for genuine national liberation and for an internationalist politics that connects the people across the antagonisms together in a common struggle. Because in reality, the working classes of Hong Kong, the working classes of Puerto Rico, the working classes of Palestine, the working classes of Ukraine, the working classes of China, the working classes of Russia, of the Eastern European states, we all share far more in common with each other in a global capitalist system than we share in common with any of the states that run that system and fight for position within it. So oppose the U.S. if you're in the U.S., but don't support its rivals and build solidarity across borders in this multiracial, highly integrated um, global population whose common interests should be brought to the fore in common struggles for liberation. Kevin, Ashley, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.